Heavenly Father, you inspired every word of Scripture. You have recorded it for our learning and our encouragement. So, Father, we pray that you would help us tonight to hear and understand what you are saying to us. We need your help. So speak to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. What do you say to someone who is suffering? That's the question which the book of Job asks us tonight. When you meet with someone who is going through a hard time, what do you say? Tonight we're thinking about the contribution of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. I'm sure you've heard the saying that a friend in need is a friend indeed. But I wonder if that's what Job thought of these three. At the start of the book, they were friends in need and friends indeed. They came together at the end of chapter 2. They sat with Job and they kept quiet. For a full week. They were true friends. It's only whenever they open their mouths. That they start causing problems. In our readings tonight we heard a little bit from each one of them. It goes on a lot longer than that. We could have been here till tomorrow. Reading all that they say. Um, But it might be useful to remember how the book of Job is structured. Chapters 1 and 2 give us the split screen view of heaven and earth. In heaven, God and Satan having that conversation about Job. Uh, Satan's permission to test Job's faith by unleashing disaster after disaster. Taking away his wealth. Taking away his children. Taking away his health. And then on earth we see how Job responds with faith and confidence in God. Then in chapter 3 which we looked at last week. Chapter 3 brings Job's lament, the cry of suffering. And it's that chapter which then prompts the three friends to intervene. To Begin speaking. And the pattern continues. Job speaks. Then one of the friends speaks. Then Job speaks. Then the next friend speaks. Then Job speaks. And then the third of the friends speak. And it goes around in that cycle. Uh, not quite three times. But not far off three times. So far only gets two bites at the cherry. Round and round until chapter 31, Job's final defence. And I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, so I'll not tell you what happens after that. 
So what we're looking at tonight is just a bit of what they say. But even that little bit that we heard tonight was quite shocking. And the more they go on, the worse they get. Can you imagine sitting down with someone at a wake and telling them to their face that they're only getting what they really do deserve? That they have no right to complain, that they should just uh, deal with it. And yet that's what these so-called friends do. In terms of pastoral sensitivity, in terms of decency, it's simply ridiculous. You want to squirm in your seat. You, You can't believe that they're coming out with this. And that's shocking of itself that we find this in the scripture. But as I read what they said, there was a bigger shock. Because I found myself agreeing with a lot of what they said. They talk about universal sin. They talk about the need for repentance. They talk about God's great mercy for the one who turns to him. And these are things that we sign up to, that we agree with, that we preach. This is the heart of our faith. So what's going on? How can we grasp what's happening and how can we discover the truth from what's being said? I think it's helpful to remember a couple of things before we dive in to look at these chapters. The first is that God's word is true. But not everything in the Bible expresses truth. I'll say that again because it's hard to get your head around. God's word is true. But not everything in the Bible expresses truth. You see what we have here in what we read tonight. Are the opinions of these three men. They're recorded in the Bible For our instruction. But that doesn't mean that what they say is true. In the way that for example the words of Jesus are always absolutely perfectly true. And we find that in chapter 42. Whenever God's verdict of what these three friends say is delivered to Eliphaz. God says... My anger burns against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right. As my servant Job has. So we need to be careful as we look at what they say. Because God doesn't like it either. The second thing to remember. Is that Job is blameless. God has affirmed it several times when he talks to Satan in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Job maintains his innocence. But his friends, they don't believe him. Now, when we say Job is blameless, we're not saying that he has never sinned. But it does mean 
that this suffering that he's going through is not linked to his sin. But his friends don't believe him. They, they don't buy that he's blameless. They reckon that there must be some serious secret sin for him to suffer in such a way. And so with that introduction let's look at what Eliphaz says. That's hard to say. Eliphaz. And don't worry we'll not be reading verse by verse by verse. Or we would be here until breakfast time. But let's look at it. With truth and untruth mixed together, let's see how not to speak to the one who's suffering. First of all then, he accuses Job of hypocrisy and inconsistency. At verse 2 of chapter 4, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. So whenever other people had been suffering, Job was a counsellor, was an advisor, was a helper... But now that it has come to Job's door, well, things are very different. He has changed his tune. Now he's impatient and dismayed. And yet, Eliphaz says he should have confidence and hope because of his integrity and his fear of the Lord. Eliphaz's worldview is summed up In verse 8. Look at it with me. As I have seen. Those who plough iniquity. And sow trouble. Reap the same. You reap. What you sow. So therefore Job. If you're suffering. You must have done something really bad. To deserve that. If you're reaping trouble. You must have sowed it. After all, verse 7, the verse before, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? He then turned super spiritual with his night vision, asking that question, can mortal man be in the right before God? Verse 17, he uh, talks of that, you know, that spirit gliding into his bedroom and feeling this presence and All this stuff. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In other words he's saying that we're all sinners. So really we all deserve to suffer. And that observation carries him right through the rest of that chapter. And in the chapter 5 and verse 7. Man is born to trouble As the sparks fly upward. We just need to. Deserve it and expect it. And so what does Job need to do. According to Eliphaz and his world view. It's in verse 8 there. 
in chapter 5. As for me, I would seek God and to God would I commit my cause. Job, you need to see this as warning, as discipline, as an opportunity to repent. So turn now while you still can. Then you'll know God's blessings. And the very end of chapter 5 sums his whole message up. He says, Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. You see, what I was saying, it, it, in some ways it sounds right. There's much that we would agree with. In other contexts it would be absolutely right except in this circumstance, in this situation, he's wrong. You see, Eliphaz is too quick to take a general principle, the observation that you reap what you sow and too quick to turn it into a universal principle. That in absolutely every case, this is how it works out. Eliphaz wants to see life as black and white, as clear cut, when it's a lot more grey, a lot more messy. Because as we have already heard, Job is not suffering for his sin. I wonder, can we be like Eliphaz sometimes and hear of some, something that happens and, and think, well, they got what they deserved. They had that coming to them. But Psalm 73 reminds us that the world just isn't as clear cut as that. Where the psalmist says, you know, I look at the world around me and, and you know, the righteous suffer and, and, and those who are wicked, the, the more wicked, the more they prosper. And why is this? And he almost stumbled, he, he almost um, was jealous of the wicked. Until he enters the sanctuary. And he beholds God and he realises the end. So things aren't just as clear cut as Eliphaz wants to put it. As we sometimes want to make it. So then uh, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 Job responds. Now we're, we're not going to go into that or we would be here until Sunday. Um, but whenever it's Bildad's turn to speak in, in chapter 8, uh, the next uh, passage that we had read, Bildad majors on history and on ancient wisdom. He affirms God's justice, but then applies it insensitively. Um, do you see at the uh, near the bottom of the middle page? Um, Verse 3, he says, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. 
So maybe Job, your ten grown-up children, just got what they deserved. He then it looks to the learning of the past, the lessons of long experience, which show that reeds wither without water. And that's also what happens to people who forget God. And so that must be what has happened to Job. That he looks impressive, but actually his inner life has gone. He, he has forgotten about God and therefore God has, has, has um, smote him. That Job is like that spider's web that looks so firm, uh, but snaps fairly easily. And so Bildad's answer at verse 20 he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. So, Job, if you're uh, an evildoer, then you need to repent. And if you really were blameless, then God wouldn't have rejected you like this. Now, that's bad, I think you'll agree. But then, so far, the third of them, he, he's even worse. He, he goes even further. Look at um, chapter 11 and verse 6. You'll need to turn again uh, to the last page of our Bible readings. And look at verse uh, 6. The second half of it or the third part of it. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And what he's saying is, to, to really, you know, you've lost your, all your livestock and you've lost all your wealth and you've lost all your sons and daughters and you've lost your health. You're sitting with these sores all over your body and you're in terrible pain, but actually, you know, you got off lightly. <laughs> and this is meant to be his friend. And so he says that Job needs to realise that he can't know himself deeply. That God really knows what he is really like. And that therefore he needs to repent. And I think from what we have read that we have read enough. That we have heard enough of this so-called help. Enough of this so-called wisdom. Because the cycle continues. Job maintaining his innocence, his friends calling him a liar, calling him to repent. And round and round it goes until chapter 31. Well, with friends like these, who needs enemies? It's no wonder that Job, in chapter 16, getting fairly annoyed at them, calls them miserable comforters. I wonder if you've ever been called a, a Job's comforter, someone who, you know, someone's suffering and, and, and you come and, well, you know, it could be worse. You know, wonder has ever, anyone ever said something like that to you? Have you ever been in that circumstance? Well, 
What can we learn from them? What is this portion of scripture teaching us? How can we speak to those who are suffering? We need to learn to speak the truth in love. As Paul says in Ephesians. To speak the truth, absolutely, the the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But to do it in love. So before you open your mouth, engage your brain. And ask, is what I'm about to say helpful? Is it upbuilding? Is it for their benefit? Or am I using truth like a hammer? Or a machine gun? So speak the truth in love. We also need to acknowledge that that we can't know everything perfectly. You see these friends have their particular worldview, And everything has to fit into how they see things. But as we hear rightly of God's majesty and power. As we come back to that question in chapter 11. That we sung in the first hymn, can we by searching find out God? Can we um, grasp everything that God knows? And the answer is no. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they thought that they had God packaged. That they had it all worked out, that they knew better than God. But we need to be aware that we're not God, that we can't know everything perfectly. And sometimes, um, who was it, Ronan Keating, um, said, Son, you set best when you say nothing at all. As someone wrote in one of the commentaries, the best thing that the friends did was to shut up, to keep silent for that week. Because as I say, it was only when they opened their mouth that they caused all these problems. So recognize that you don't know everything and, and, and sometimes things are beyond what we can understand. But we also need to see God at work in our world. And to remember that he is not the God of karma. Um, Karma is this wonderful idea that people around us have. And and originally it was a Buddhist idea. But now, you know, anyone you bump into probably believes in it. That, you know, what you do will come back to you. And so um, God is pictured as waiting for you to do something good. Or something bad and then he will give you what you deserve based on what you have done to pay it back to you. But that's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We need to see God as he really is, the God of mercy and love and grace. The God who doesn't wait for us to make a move because we never would make a move. That he is the God who intervenes in our world. The God who takes the initiative. The God who makes the first step to rescue sinners. Job's comforters couldn't have got their heads around the cross. An innocent man who had done no wrong who was suffering in the place of sinners. Eliphaz asks the question who that was innocent ever perished? And the answer Jesus. Jesus was the one who stepped into our world of mess. Who chose to come and take our sin upon him so that we might be saved. An American pastor has said this why do bad things happen to good people that only happened once and he volunteered the friends are absolutely right that we deserve nothing and yet absolutely wrong Because they fail to see the God of grace who steps in to take our punishment, to bring us back to himself, to make us blameless. We who are aware of our own sin, who recognise that we do indeed deserve those wages of, of sin, In the face of Jesus Christ and his death for us. How can we point fingers at anyone else? How can we pontificate about what other people deserve? In the face of grace. We simply bow down and worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you did not stand far off to condemn. We praise you that you did not leave us to our own devices. We praise you that you uh, do not delight 
in the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were that innocent who suffered. We thank you that you have borne our punishment, that you have carried our diseases, that by your stripes we are healed. Give us grace to find our confidence in your cross. Give us compassion for those who suffer. And may we point them to you and not point them to their sin. So Lord, may may we praise you. May we rejoice in your grace and in your goodness. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.